Good morning. We want to continue our studies in 1 Corinthians this morning. So uh, I would invite you to turn to chapter 15. And uh, I would like to begin reading with verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. A number of years ago, I was engaged in in conversation with a university professor who at the time was not well known but since has become uh, quite famous as a, as a liberal theologian. And we were talking about various aspects of the Christian faith. I asked him if he believed in the resurrection of Christ. His response was to say, I believe in the Easter event. The most obvious question then is, what, what, what do you mean by the Easter event? He said, well, it, it's this notion that the early church clearly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's obvious from uh, Christian cemeteries of the first century, from little bone caskets that have been found in the catacombs and from other, other evidence. I said, well, do you believe that Christ rose from the dead? And he laughed. He said, you cannot really believe that a dead carcass can come back to life. And I have to confess that I was uh, intimidated a bit by his scorn. It was so thick. But then I, I, I thought of this verse and quoted it as best I could. I said, well, I, you know, I, yeah, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead because if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Anybody is better off than a Christian. The ancient, in the ancient world, there were two or three beliefs about the immortality of the soul. One was the idea that uh, came from Greek uh, philosophy that though the soul was immortal, the body was not, the body was bad. It was just a container for the inner life to be jettisoned at, at death. And then there was a, a vague notion of uh, immorality, with, which is really very much like... Uh, the, uh, the, the idea you find in Eastern religions today that the soul is absorbed into a cosmic consciousness, a universal soul. I call it the uh, cosmic soup theory. We're all mixed together so that our personalities lose uh, distinctiveness. The other view that was paramount was just the idea that when you're gone, you're gone. There's nothing, just darkness, oblivion. This is all there is. Into that world, the apostles began to preach the resurrection of the dead, that God cared about bodies, that while the soul was immortal, God's ultimate plan was to redeem the body as, as well. And that, was, that landed like a bombshell in the ancient world because that was, that was, that was news. 
And for some, it was very good news. But it was hard to buy. And, and that notion that there's no life after death had apparently pervaded certain elements of the church in Corinth. And, and that's why Paul found it necessary to write this letter. And his argument basically is a what-if argument. What if there is no resurrection from the dead? What, what can be said? I think he did so because there are some people who say, well, the resurrection is not really important to Christian faith. The, the real essential is Christian ethics, Christian morality. It's Jesus' teaching, and the resurrection is secondary. Paul says, no, that's not true. They're part and parcel of one another. You cannot tear the resurrection out of, out of the gospel without irreparably damaging the, the fabric of it. And so he raises a, a bunch of questions. What if, what if, what if, what if there's no resurrection from the dead? His first conclusion is that Christ didn't rise from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise. So let's forget Easter. And let's, let's place in question the witness of, of the, early, uh, the early Christian church, certainly the witness of the two women that, that came to the tomb early in the morning and who saw the, the grave clothes stiffened by the spices that had been applied to the wraps, looking somewhat like a chrysalis that had formed around the body of Jesus. They weren't torn. They weren't destroyed. He, his body had passed right through the wraps. At least that was the witness that they gave. And, John, Peter, and others that came to the tomb affirmed that, uh, that conclusion. So let's just dismiss the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. His body was stolen, as it was rumored, or there's some colossal deceit that's being perpetrated, uh, that was perpetrated on the early church, and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So we can dismiss that, that myth, and we can forget Easter. And Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, what we preached and what you believed is empty of content. That's the word that Paul uses for futile or useless here. It's an empty shell. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the preaching of the gospel uh, was fourfold. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and he was seen. That, that Those appearances are an integral part of that early creed that was, that was preached in the, uh, in the church. But if there's no resurrection, none of that is, is true. Again, you cannot tear the resurrection out of that preaching without doing great damage to the gospel. Thirdly, Paul says, more than that, we apostles are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. The, the apostles are either, they were either deceived or they're deceivers. What a monstrous lie. They told, if, if they're deceivers, that they had seen the risen Lord. So something about their integrity. They, they, they not only can be trust, can't be trusted about the resurrection, they can't be trusted about anything. And you have to understand, everything we know about Jesus came from the apostles. Jesus didn't write anything, as far as we know. The only thing he is said to have written was written in the sand with his finger. He didn't write any books. There are no, no letters dating from this period with our Lord's signature at the bottom. He didn't write anything. The apostles tell us everything we know about Jesus. So if they lied about the resurrection or if they were deceived about the resurrection, there's no way of knowing if, whether or not we can trust them in anything else that they said. So as Paul puts it, the more logical conclusion is that apostles are, are false witnesses. Fourth, he says, your, 
Your faith is futile. There he uses another word for empty that means empty of any effect. It doesn't accomplish anything. You are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in, in Christ are lost. So there's no answer to the guilt of the past. There's no way to redress any of the ills that uh, characterized uh, our, our lives. There's no power over sin for the present. There's no way of knowing that, that we won't be over, overwhelmed by old habits and sins in the future. We have to bear the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment of all of our sin. We bear that guilt. And furthermore, Paul says those that, that have died are gone. They're lost. They're gone forever. That empties the content of, of almost every funeral service I've given over the past 30 years. I must have presided over hundreds of funerals, and I always promise that those in Christ are going to see their loved ones again, but uh, that promise is, is empty. I'll never see my mother or father again. You'll never see your parents or your children, those in your family that, that have lost. When it's over, it's It's over. Algernon Swinburg put it in one of his poems, from too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever God's may be, that no one lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river runs somewhere out to sea. And, I, and, and we say, oh, what, what hopelessness, what hopelessness. When it's over, it's over. And that violates terribly some sense that we have that we ought to live forever. Eternity is written in our hearts. And it's indecent to end up under the ground. Why, why do we have to leave everything that we've worked for, everything that we've, we've accumulated, and uh, disappear and, as though we had, had never been here at all? It just, just doesn't seem right. But, but if there is no resurrection, then we better get real. And let's forget the Christian faith. Let's give all the clergy their pink slips and tell them to clean out their desks. Let's turn our churches into museums and mausoleums. Let's throw away all of our Christian tapes and, and books. And let's forget all about this Christian stuff because it's, it's a hoax. And we ought, to, we ought to get it out of our, our minds. And as Paul puts it, if, if it's only in this life we have faith and hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than that all men, anybody in this world is better off than, than Christians. We're to be pity. We ought to be objects of, of scorn. In the catacombs, uh, there's a drawing of a young man on, down on his knees, uh, worshiping a figure on a cross that has the head of a donkey. And underneath is the inscription, Anaxagoras worships his God. Well, if Christ did not rise, if the apostles are not truthful, if the gospel is not unequivocally clear, then we're worshiping a donkey. And let's just forget it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Or, as it's put today, you only go around once, so you, you better go for all the gusto. Greed is good. Why stick with a marriage that's tough? Find someone else that will give you the joy that you're seeking in this life because if you don't get it in this life, you won't get it at all. But that's not where Paul leaves us. He goes on in the next verse to assert that Jesus did, in fact, rise again. 
You have to understand that he penned these words less than 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And as he tells us in the early, earlier part of this, uh, of this chapter, there were 500 people that saw him at one time, many of whom are still alive, and, and their testimony can be verified. There are witnesses around that had seen the risen Lord. He wasn't the only, the only one. So Paul could say with great assurance, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first of a long harvest of souls that will follow. It's a wonderful picture that he uses here. It goes back to Israel's harvest festival. Or just before the harvest, they would all gather in Jerusalem, all the heads of households, and they would bring with them a sheaf of grain, and they would wave it before the Lord as a sign that it all belonged to the Lord. And that sheaf was the first fruits of a, of a harvest that was to follow. What Paul is saying is that Jesus was the first of a number of souls that will come out of the ground be raised to eternal life. And we say, well, no, he wasn't the first. Lazarus was, or Jairus' daughter, or some, some of the others that were raised from the dead. But all of those uh, folks died. They, they were simply resuscitated, and they eventually died. Our Lord was the first to achieve a resurrection. God raised him from the dead and glorified him, never, never to die again. And uh, his... Uh, his resurrection is the, is the down payment, the earnest of God's promise that we will, we will rise with him. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all other dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. It's a very complex theological argument. Let me try to simplify it for What he's saying is that there are two men who had a tremendous impact upon the world. The first was Adam. Adam sinned. And he died. He was the first to sin and the first to die. And something happened to the race that, that followed him. Introduced into our genetic structure was, uh, was a sinful condition that causes all of us to die. Paul argues in Romans 5, the way we know everyone sins is that everybody dies. If somebody can get through this life without dying, then it's a demonstration that that's a sinless person. Which tells us something about our Lord. He was a sinless person. He didn't have to die. He wasn't killed. He gave up his life. He could have hung forever on that cross and never died because he was utterly without sin. But that's not true of us. We're sinful. And the evidence that we're all sinful is that we all die. So in one sense, we're all part of the race of Adam. We all descended from him, and we inherited sin and, and death from him just as we inherited certain facial and, and, and uh, physical and intellectual uh, capabilities and, and characteristics from our uh, from our ancestors. The whole world is descended from Adam. So the whole world is sinful and, and the whole world dies. Sin and death are inextricably linked. 
Death is more than just our lot. It is our judgment. It's God's assessment that the wages of sin have to be paid and the wages of sin is death. But our Lord himself incurred the penalty. He died for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And the resurrection is God's guarantee that he accepted that sacrifice. It is God's amen to Jesus' words. It is finished. And so we know that God is is satisfied with with the sacrifice that, that Jesus made. And when we place ourselves in Christ by faith in him, we have eternal life. In Adam we all die. In Christ we will all be made alive, Paul says. And as, uh, as history uh, runs its course in the end, the Son who has been subjected to the Father for the purposes of redemption will return that authority to the Father so that God may be all in all. And the enemy that all of us have to face, which is death, will be vanquished once for all. No one will ever die again. That's what our Lord Lord did for for us. And so the question really is, you know, which family are we in? We're all in the family of Adam. We all have the Adamic nature, as theologians tell us. The real question is, are we in Christ? Because that's the only way that the problem of death can be can be resolved. As Paul puts it, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now Paul goes on, uh, as I've mentioned before, he, he has this penchant for driving the nail in and then turning the board over and giving it a few whacks on the other side. He wants to continue with this what-if argument, which he does in verse 29, which introduces us to one of the most puzzling passages in the New Testament. Now, if there is no resurrection, not not all your your translations have that phrase. The New International Version has inserted that phrase because that's clearly what Paul Paul means. If there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not actually raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you want and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So the fifth what if leads us to the conclusion that those who are being baptized for the dead are wasting their time because the dead do not live after death. Well, uh, as, as most of you know, I'm sure this is the cornerstone of the LDS doctrine of proxy baptism or baptism for the dead. As you know, they maintain enormous amounts of genealogical material. The purpose of them is to uh, determine who you're ancestors are or others in, in, in the history that uh, did not have an opportunity to hear the gospel and you can be baptized for them and by that means they gain salvation. Now there are some that think that there was some practice of proxy baptism in the church in the first century and Paul is not condoning that practice. He's simply saying why would you do that if there is no resurrection? 
It is true that the second century church practiced proxy baptism, though it was condemned as a heresy by uh, the mainline uh, church. But I I have another way of of looking at this. I don't think this is a reference to proxy baptism at all. I think what Paul is saying is, why would people step up into line and place place their lives in danger, endanger themselves as Christians, if there's no life after death? Let me illustrate what I think he's saying here. Uh, You know, during the Revolutionary War, the British uh, fought pretty much as they'd always fought in Europe. They stood like men in line and let people shoot them down. The, The battles then were... Wars of attrition, those that had the most number of men in their army, won the battle. And uh, the first line knew that they were giving up their lives. They would uh, stand uh, in a straight line, they would raise their muskets to their shoulders, and they would fire, and they would usually go down under the first, uh, first fuselage of, uh, uh, of, of shots from the other side. The next line would step into their place, and they would raise their muskets and fire. I think it's that picture that Paul has in mind. Here is a line of first-generation Christians who are giving up their lives for the sake of Christ. As Paul puts it uh, a verse or two later, I myself die daily. They're putting their life on the line. They step into line with other Christians, and they're going down through martyrdom or perhaps through natural death. And Paul is saying, if there is no life after death, if there is no promise of a resurrection... Why would anybody want to be a Christian? Why would anybody want to be baptized in that sense of being identified with Christ, being placed into Christ, and step into that line of believers who are being mowed down? doesn't make any sense. Don't, there's no reason to become a Christian, he's saying. Furthermore, there's no reason to suffer for the cause of Christ. As I mentioned, Paul uh, says, uh, I, I mean this, brothers. I've, I die every day. Just as surely as I glory over you in, in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, that is for no higher purpose than what, what, uh, what results might uh, accrue in this life, what, what have I gained? Now, I, I don't know what Paul means here. He may be using the term wild beast metaphorically for the crowd that he had to face in Ephesus. We know of that occasion from the book of Acts. It may be that Paul got tossed into the arena. And he had to fight wild beasts. They would often give them a club or a sword or some weapon and put them in the arena. And and, and even Roman citizens, we know, occasionally uh, underwent that ordeal. And uh, who knows, maybe maybe Paul whopped a tiger over the head. And and the crowd was so pleased, they gave him a thumbs up and and he was was released. We don't know. But Paul says, why would I want to do that? Why, why, because it was getting to the point where if you simply confess Jesus as Lord, you were likely to lose your life. And Paul said, why would anyone do that if, if the, whole, the whole system is a, is a sham, if it's a fraud, if it's meaningless, if there's no life after death? If there's nothing more than this life, Paul says, if you only go around once, then you better go for all the gusto. Because this is all there is. There isn't anything else. And if you don't get it in this life, you're not going to get it. And then Paul issues what I think is a stinging rebuke. Verse verse 33. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now you'll notice in most translations that phrase is in quotes. It's actually a quotation from a, from a Greek uh, poet. Um, 
Menander. And uh, the point of, of his uh, statement is that bad company can corrupt morality. If you hang out with the wrong kind of people, if you listen to the wrong philosophies of life, it will corrupt your morals. If we listen to what the world is telling us, what our friends are telling us, what the media is telling us, that this is all there is, that if you don't get it in this life, there's nothing more, it will have a radical effect on our morality. If this is all, all there is, then greed is good. If this is all there is, then it's perfectly all right to crawl over the dead bodies of your competitors in order to get ahead. If this is all there is, then there's no reason to live with that clutch you're married to any longer. Pick up the key, Lee, go out the back, Jack, get yourself free. Find somebody who will give you the kind of satisfaction you're looking. You understand what he's saying? If Christianity is false, if there is no resurrection, if this is all there is, then you better get it in this life because there isn't anything else. Paul says, look, come back to your senses. Wake up, he said. This isn't all there is. Christ did rise from the dead. The gospel is true. The apostles did tell you the truth. You will someday rise if you're in Christ. Awake to righteousness, he says, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, uh, what can we say about this passage? What's the significance of it for us today? Well, let me say, first of all, I, I know for some of you, you feel that life has dealt you a bad hand. Uh, very often people say to me, life is not fair. And uh, my response to them is always, of course it isn't. Whoever thought it was. Life is very unfair. We are not created equal. We're created equal in the eyes of God. But some people are far more fortunate than others. Some come into life with bodies that have an enormous amount of potential, athletically, aesthetically. Uh, all of us, when we were in high school, longed to have uh, bodies that would uh, equip us to play football or be cheerleaders or, or whatever. And some had uh, those capabilities and, and some did not. As, as I've said, some were tall, dark, and handsome. Some were short, shot, and shapeless. That's, that, that's just the way it is. We don't all have the same gifts physically. We don't all have the same gifts intellectually. Some are brighter than others. They have an easier time of it in school. They remember things. I have a good friend who has a photographic memory. He reads everything. He forgets nothing. I'm, I'm intimidated around him because he never forgets anything. And uh, obviously people that are endowed with high intellect get along better than others. They, uh, they do better in school and they do better throughout life. They generally make more money than than the rest of us. They turn out to be more uh, successful in terms of this world's uh, evaluations. And, and some of us, some of you were, you, you didn't have some of the potential. You didn't have some of the opportunities that others had. You might very well have become a brain surgeon or a, a rocket scientist, but you never got to finish high school. You had to stop Stop the educational process uh, very early and go to work, or your family didn't have the money to send you to college, and so you're stuck in some dead-end job that doesn't have any, it's just routine and meaningless, there's no challenge to it. It's not fair that you should uh, 
be saddled with, with that iniquity, but that's, that's just the way it is. Some of you desperately want to be mothers, and uh, you're not married yet, or you can't have children for, for some reason. And it doesn't seem fair that other women can, can have their children and enjoy them, and, and you're, you're bereft of that, of that joy. Some of you were terribly mistreated in your youth. You were physically and, and emotionally, sexually abused, and it's, it's marred your personality. It's made you difficult to get along with. As a friend of mine used to say, threatened people are threatening. Those that feel insecure, those that have been robbed of a, of a good sense of, of a sense of, uh, of uh, 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 good, uh, good image, uh, often are very hostile, difficult people to live with. And you know that, and, and you want to change, you want to be different, but uh, you've been irreparably marked by your childhood. It's not your fault, you see, and life is, it has just not been fair to you. And I think that some people have a spiritual edge on others. It's easier for them to trust God. Perhaps they had a father who was trustworthy, and so they've been able to transfer that faith to, to their heavenly father. But others, uh, the word father only brings memories of bitterness and, and uh, all that, uh, that uh, you were robbed of in, in life. And you carry that over into your faith, and it's hard for you to believe. You struggle throughout your entire life. And you have problems with, with doubts and fears that, that others don't have. And then, uh, of course... Uh, as you age, all bets are off. Uh, everything begins to, uh, uh, to decline. There isn't a body made that doesn't uh, descend into the, into the dust. Uh, when I was a much younger man, I, I thought that my body would never die. I, I lifted weights and I ran, and, and I thought I'd be the world's quickest uh, octogenarian. But I, uh, I discovered that all the things I did to try to keep my body together when I was younger, are the things that eventually destroyed it. I have bad knees and a, a rotator cuff that gives me a lot of trouble and a bad back, and those are all things that came about as a result of, of trying to keep myself together physically. And uh, as you get older, your, your mind begins to get impaired. You, you forget things. You, you forget names and places. And uh, uh, you're just not as acute and sharp as, as you used to be. And uh, you, you just you, you begin to fall apart. And as we look at ourselves, we realize that this world is a very difficult place to live in. And we finally come to the conclusion that C.S. Lewis came to. There is no earthly joy. Now, I, I want you to understand that I'm not okay and you're not okay, but it's okay. Do you realize that? Every one of us is flawed in some way. That's, that's the nature of this life, but we're okay. Because if we're in Christ, see, if we've taken that step out of the family of Adam into the family of Christ, we're okay. One of these days, we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to give us a body that's equal to the demands of the Spirit. We're going to talk more about this uh, next week. Where Paul uh, begins to investigate this idea of our resurrection body and, and what it's like. And, 
And he tells us that it would be a body like our Lord Jesus that reflects our personalities, uh, that will be recognizable. We, we will know one another. And a body that's perfect in all of its dimensions, a perfect mind and uh, a perfect personality without all of the distortions that, uh, that environment and heredity have introduced into our, into our lives. We will be a glorious, glorious being. I've always loved C.S. Lewis's statement. It goes like this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may someday be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or as John Donne put it, Don't long to be like an angel, for you shall forfeit the glory that God intends for you as a man or woman. He he intends to make of us something more than he ever made of of angels. And I cannot imagine what that's like. But what it says to me is that I have to keep that, that eternal perspective. If I look at this life and say, this is all there is, I will be constantly disappointed and discouraged and frustrated and depressed. But if I understand this isn't all that, is, that, that there is, that God has laid up for me an inheritance that's been promised from, from all of eternity, then it gives me a different perspective on this life. I can begin to focus on the things that really matter. Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to keep body and soul together and Paul says exercise profits a little, but we have, it enables us to keep the main things the main things, you see. To focus on two elements of life that the Bible says are the only eternal commodities, the only things that really matter, the only things that have everlasting advantage. Soul making and soul winning. Soul making is the word that the Puritans used for uh, that process by which we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what really matters. Sure, our bodies and our minds are going to decline. But as Paul puts it, though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man can be renewed day by day. And even though life is drawing to a close for you, you can still be growing. We grow to ceilings in every other aspect of life. But we never grow to a ceiling in terms of spiritual development. The sky is the limit. And even if you're you're elderly and and infirmed and overwhelmed by arthritis and osteoporosis and all of the other things that begin to happen to, to our bodies, you can continue to grow in grace until you see your, your Savior. Wisdom can soften your face. People, as they grow older, either get more ornery and irascible or they get sweeter. And what makes us sweeter is the presence of Christ in our lives. And the other thing besides soul-making is soul-winning. That's what Paul means when he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Shame on you, he says. If we're preoccupied with uh, thin thighs and, and uh, fitting into our, our bathing suits this uh, summer and, and uh, or so, uh, somehow uh, amassing uh, a great amount of intellectual uh, uh, accomplishments, if we pursue those things, if that's life for us, we're preoccupied with the things that only give significance and meaning and security to us in this life, we are bypassing the most wonderful opportunity to share the hope of eternal life with those that are around us. 
So Paul says there are two, two philosophies of life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We only, only go around once, so go for all the gusto. Or we can have that eternal perspective that enables us to focus on the things in this life that really matter, growing in grace and giving away our faith to others. Let's pray. Paul, at the end of his argument in 1 Corinthians 15, says, Therefore, brethren, men and women, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The only commodities we're going to take with us into heaven is the work that God is doing in our own hearts and the work that he does in the hearts of others through us. Realizing that we have that hope is what motivates us to stay with the task, regardless of how difficult it is, to stay with a hard marriage, to keep working with a very difficult ADD child, to continue to love an aging parent who is beginning to get on our nerves, to continue to give away our faith to people around us who have no hope beyond this life. And then I would like to say for those of you who have not yet taken that step out of the family of Adam and into the family of Christ, Paul's word to you is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's just that simple. You say, well, I have a hard time believing that he was raised from the dead. That's all right. You tell God that you have a hard time believing. Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do my will, he will know if the teaching is true. If we will simply respond to his call, he'll confirm the reality of it. So you can right here in the quietness of your own heart. Ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord, and you will, by that one, that one step, move from death to life. Lord Jesus, thank you for this unequivocally clear response to our fear of death. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.